a second round pick by the Calgary Flames in 2014. I didn't get drafted the first time through in 2013. I remember I had a pretty emotional day. I was home alone actually and I remember watching the draft and it was it was tough and I kind of made a decision when my name wasn't called to make sure it was called the next year or so. This is only me and you, man. Yep. It's only me and you that's listening to this right now. That's the funny it's part. It's not published nowhere. No, I feel like millions are watching. They're not. That's so true, eh? <laughs> they are not. They're not looking at us right now. Welcome back, everybody, to episode two of the Quarter Life Crisis podcast, or the QLC. Today, I'm very excited to be back on the mic because we've got an amazing episode for you with a very special guest. It's a guest that to me has been sort of like a celebrity for many years now. Today, what this guy's going to do is he's going to talk about his ups, his downs in his professional sports career. Yes, professional sports career. When and where he encountered his quarter life crisis and where he's at today. Standing here at six foot, eight inches tall, a professional hockey player that was drafted in the second round of the NHL 2014 draft pick a Memorial Cup champion, a blue check mark on his Instagram, University of Windsor student, studying business currently, and an avid fan of overalls and Chuck Taylors that are slightly too large for his feet. Ladies and gentlemen, my dear friend, my co-host of the Quarter Life Crisis podcast, Hunter, aka Rig Riga Tony Smith. Hunt, what is going on today, brother? That was quite the intro. I, I respect that. I appreciate <laughs> that. And I am happy to be here. Uh, I was here regardless if I was the guest or not, but I'm pumped. Let's roll. Talk to me. What, uh, what have you been up to this week? Well, very exciting. Now that I am fortunate enough to live out West, I got a annual ski pass. So I hit the slopes this weekend. And for anyone out there wondering, when you're 25 years old and you go skiing for the second and third time, and you fall, it hurts. <laughs> we are not eight-year-old kids anymore running around the playground who just fall on their knees, scrape them up, and get up and keep running. I fell on decently soft snow, I think three or four times, and my hips are terrible. Like, I am bruised. I am sore. I couldn't do anything for two days. And that's a big body going down, eh? Yeah, but we just <laughs> forget. Like, people say, like, you start getting sore quick when you get older, and it's like, I'm getting sore. Okay, correct me if I'm wrong here, Riggs. Aren't you automatically pretty much a good skier if you're a good hockey player, or am I wrong by saying that? That is definitely a asset to have. When you can skate, it's pretty easy to ski. It's just it's a little awkward because you use the opposite feet for edges, but other than that, it is pretty simple. I, I snowboarded my whole life and just picked up skiing once last year and then twice now this year. So. I'm looking forward to really kind of developing myself on the slopes mm -hmm. and hitting the mountain all, uh, all winter here. And it's got to be tough for you because you're literally a tree sliding down the hill. Well, that was the problem is once I caught an edge, <laughs> it was, it was over. So it's gone from there. eh? Yeah. Heinz, let's begin with this. Your most recent move in your career, you moved out to Vancouver, which is where you're at right now. Talk to me a little bit about the steps that kind of pushed you in that direction. And they could have been steps that maybe you took a long time ago that kind of pushed you this way, or maybe it was just a spontaneous trip that you decided to go out there. But tell me what 
was the main reason you decided to go out to Vancouver? Yeah, it's a good question. And a lot of people or a lot of friends and family have had that and they believe it was very spontaneous and not planned at all, which is kind of the opposite of the truth. This is something that I've kind of considered doing, not necessarily Vancouver, but to get away and see the country for a while. Originally, it was supposed to be the great North American road trip. I actually have a file, a word file of everything I wanted to see in North America, or at least in the United States and Canada. And the plan was to do it all by traveling in a van and seeing everything. And that was the most cost-effective way to do it. And all I needed to do was have the time. So with COVID and as summer kind of wrapped up, I was looking at myself and I was, I had a month and a half off before school and didn't really know what was going on. So I just decided to go for it and, uh, you know, put a bed in the Jeep, took off. Yeah. And see that that's one of the craziest things when you told me that you were making a bed in your Jeep, I just thought there's no way this is happening even in my head. And I'm one of the ones that thinks you can do anything. And even in my head, I was like, um, this might be a stretch. The funniest part of it all is everyone asked because I'm so big, how did I make it work and how did it, how did I fit? This is the first bed I've ever slept in that my feet did not hang off the end. It was an inch taller than me and it was very, very narrow. I agree. Smallest bed per square inch or foot, but it had the length and that's what really made it work to be honest for the whole time because I didn't have to crunch up into a ball. Yeah. And for those of you that don't know what Hunter looks like, Rig is a very large human being and so not travel size. And Riggs, if you don't mind sharing with us, one of your big time dreams, was it not to go on a road trip in a van and just live out of a van? And, and you are not compact at all. No. And the biggest issue with the van life is that no matter what van I got, I was not going to be able to stand in it. And I actually considered like consulting like chiropractors and just to see what, <laughs> if I had a van, I could stand in like, and bend my neck, how bad that would be over time, over like a six month period for my neck. But yeah, I, got, I really got into the van life on YouTube and it's super trendy and the Westies, the old Volkswagen buses, so cool. So like Instagram worthy. I had an opportunity to do it without buying a van and outfitting it. So that's exactly what I did. Okay. So going back to the van, first of all, I want you to share with us what the title of your YouTube account would have been called if you did take that route. And I want you to tell us what about that life makes it so appealing to you because you've talked, you've talked to me about this for a long time now. Yeah. So to answer the first question, the YouTube account was going to be called big man, little van, of course. And I thought that was pretty fitting, but the biggest thing for me was that I was traveling so much for my job, AKA hockey, that I was essentially living out of suitcases my entire life or the last eight years of my life. So I really wanted to downsize my life, obviously have certain things that were very important to me that I would have left uh, at my parents' house, but to bring everything that I needed into my own space and always have it with me. And that's what the van was going to allow me to do. And that's why I'm still drawn to it. And I'm still trying to maybe find a way to make it work. The problem is it comes at the expense of selling my Jeep. And I've had that thing since I was 16. So I don't know if I'm going to get rid of it. Yeah. That's pretty much attached to your name now, eh? Exactly. Now, do you see this van life 
this YouTube account, whatever it is to you, do you see this as being a part of your future career? Like, could it possibly be a part of your future career now that hockey is now kind of in the past? I don't know if the YouTube could be part of my career, but I could see myself living out of a van for a sustainable amount of time. Um, I've done a lot of research on it and I kind of know all the ins and outs, what works and doesn't work. But more or less now that I'm into like endurance sports and like stuff that kind of can take you around the globe or the country, at least it just, it really allows me to, to pack up and take off. And something I learned very important on this trip is that like, you really have to be okay with yourself. And I hadn't really spent a lot of time seriously alone or isolated and isolated is a word. I have to be careful about throwing around right now, but <laughs> it was an opportunity where there were days at a time where I didn't come in contact with anyone. Like I would check in with family every day uh, on the phone. But other than that, it was an opportunity to really just be alone and, and you learn so much about yourself, not so much in like a spiritual way, just like you, you become best friends with yourself. And it, it is really kind of a cool experience. And for sure, moving forward, I really want to incorporate that into an annual thing, not necessarily for like 40 days or 35 days, but uh, just a weekend and just, and, and break away and be alone. Um, there's just so much, so much growth. I found so much growth in, in being alone. And that was what really stuck out to me. And then I actually, you know, read some books and they talked about people going on walkabouts and being alone in nature and how fulfilling it can be. And I actually read that after uh, I finished my trip. So it was like, just like reassuring that I was doing something that was in some way normal. Yeah. Yeah. And like people will judge and say that it's not normal, but it's whatever you wanted to do. That's And that's one of the biggest things that I, I kind of admire about you is that you don't really give a shit about what other people think and you'll do what you want to do. And that's what I kind of admire about you. Getting back to what you were saying, you've had some major changes in your life. You went from a lifestyle of very regimented, very scheduled workouts, practices. Someone basically said, here's your life. Do whatever you want within the means of this bubble. Now that you're done with hockey, you must have had a complete switch because I, I've noticed in you with regards to dietary workouts, you've gone a totally different route. So what my question is here, can you talk to us about what it's like, first of all, to be a professional athlete at that level and what your schedule was like? Well, I think you nailed it right on the head there by saying such a regimented schedule. It was so down to the minute uh, every day, pretty much, especially while we were playing. Um, we would either get a weekly schedule, um, maybe not during the week for uh, home weeks, but when we were on the road, we had a itinerary that was essentially down to the minute and it would get changed uh, based on like certain timings of things. But it was a really interesting transition to not have that anymore. So I remember when I was sitting at home the summer, first summer after I was done, uh, we played into June and I got home and I really had nothing to do. And it was interesting. I had no reason to go to the gym other than for personal reasons, but I, I had no reason to, to go skate. 
I had no reason to really do anything, but like spend time with my friends and family. Uh, I didn't have a job either. So it was just kind of, it was a, it was a time where I was just kind of flapping in the wind and like really trying to find not purpose, but my next move. And I remember it was too soon because we played late into June that I wasn't ready to go to school in September. I wasn't ready for that, that back regimented. This is the schedule. This is when you're doing this. This is when you're doing that type of ordeal. So I really got to, to spend some time doing other things. And I had a bucket list probably started for a little while at that point. And one of the attainable things on it for me was a marathon. Hmm. And I got back into running and I got back into taking care of myself. And I said, I'm going to run this thing. And it was the first time since I'd been done where I really had to check in. And it was, I think like five months later. So I kind of shut my brain off from competition for that long. And I remember running that marathon when I got to like mile 19, it was time to dig deep and I really had to find it. And that was the first time where I actually had to dig in in a while, even while I was playing hockey, because I wasn't playing the kind of minutes that really forced me to, to dig in and like really be better than my best. And, you know, that day in October, that's what I had to do running. But yeah, a lot of changes went on. I changed my diet. I went plant-based for a little while. Yeah. Which was interesting. And that ended this summer once barbecue season hit, (laughs) but just kind of gave me opportunities to explore different things. Um, I really put a lot of time into yoga and moving and I really got my body feeling good again. And that was, that was really important to me. Hmm. That's awesome. That's really interesting. And, uh, Hunt, take us through one day, just one day of what it was like playing professional hockey, whether it was the training, the diet, just take us through what you did. Uh, so in Stockton, it was pretty much a wake up at like 7:30, and we would drive to the rink. We lived about a half hour away. Um, and we got breakfast at the rink. So some days if we left the house at 7:30, me and my roommates, it was up at 7:28. It was get up, throw your pants on, throw your shoes on, and head out the door. So then we get to the rink, you'd have breakfast there, and just like not, not like bacon and eggs, but um we had oatmeal, um, we had hard-boiled eggs and cereal and stuff like that, a lot of fruit. Um, so then that was like 8:45 would be our meeting time, I think. And we'd have a meeting that would go over practice or just like the team we were playing that weekend and just kind of like touching up on some things and some video involved. Then we'd move to, we'd go into practice at 10. So on ice was usually between 45 and an hour and 15, um, for me, it was always a little bit longer because I wasn't a like first line guy. So I always had to stay <laughs> out and do extra work after and bag skate or shoot bucks or make it look like I was doing something productive essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And probably get off the ice, like 11, 11, 15, get undressed, hit a workout. Um, even if it was before game day, there was some sort of movement or stretching that was involved. Uh, and then after that hit the showers and you could have been out of there by 12 or 1145 on good days for fun. Um, Hmm. and then after that, it was kind of a, a wide open day, um, that mostly consisted of us going to Chipotle and then home (laughs) and 
binging Netflix for hours on end. Wow. Wow. And now would you agree that that was one of the more stricter regimens or do you think even in the OHL that you had a comparable kind of schedule? I would say juniors is definitely comparable, but not the same just because you have guys that are in high school, some are in university, some are not in it either. And there's just a lot more like freedom. Um, the other thing is in juniors, generally nobody has money. You're not getting paid yeah. or you're getting paid 200 bucks every two weeks. So you have enough money for, for lunch and maybe a movie, but other than that, everyone's in the same boat. So it's kind of funny because you guys are all broke and trying to stretch out $30 uh, at the bar on Sunday night after a big win. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I'm sure you had a lot of those. I'm like I said, in the intro, Memorial cup champion. Uh, and now you played a pretty pivotal role on that team when you guys won. And for those of you that don't know what the Memorial cup is, it's the biggest tournament in junior hockey in Canada. Yes. Essentially there's three major junior leagues in Canada and, uh, the champions of them all, plus the host city playing a four team tournament, um, for the Memorial cup. And some people call it the hardest trophy to win in sports because, you have to face off against all these other champions. Um, but we were fortunate enough to have a big two, one victory, um, in the finals in OT. So that was super exciting, but, uh, we went four and zero in the tournament. So we proved ourselves and I'm pretty sure we were the top ranked team the entire year, except the final year in the rankings. So it was kind of, everything fell together at the right time. It was perfect. Yeah. Now this leads me into my next question. Do you think, that that was one of the best moments in your career, the highlights? And if not, what was? I would definitely say that is the biggest accomplishment I have to my name for fun. And not even so much just winning itself, just the group of guys that I did it with. Some of us were there for three years and the guys that weren't there for three years bonded so well with us that it was, it was really a special group of guys. And I, I know a lot of teams say that whenever they win a championship, they say it's the best group of guys, but I, I still talk to a lot of those guys today and they're, they're really important to me. So I would say it was just all together. The whole, that whole year was the greatest year of my life. Wow. And that's saying something because you were a second round pick by the Calgary flames in 2014, right? That must have been a pretty big highlight, but you got to tell me for yourself. Yeah, that was a, that was a huge honor, uh, especially after being passed up in my first draft. I didn't get drafted the first time through in 2013. That was the first draft I was eligible for. And I remember I had a pretty emotional day. I was home alone, actually. And I remember watching the draft that day and it was it was tough. And I kind of made a decision when my name wasn't called to make sure it was called the next year. So getting drafted was very, very humbling, but it was a lot of hard work that paid off. So I'm, I'm very grateful that I, I was given that opportunity to be selected. Hmm. Now that you're saying hard work, Riggs, that just takes me back to that year in high school. I don't know. I think, I believe it was grade 11 or 12 and me and Hunter went to high school together. Um, Hunts was always the kind of guy that was down for anything spontaneous Whatever you're doing, Hunter was there. Hunter was in and was going 100%. Now, there was one summer, and I remember it. Everyone remembers it because there was one summer that you went full shut mode. I didn't see Hunter. Hunter didn't see me. And, and it was, what, maybe June, 
to September and I, I literally did not see you once or hear from you. Yeah. And in the end that I owe that to a lot of my success at a young age to be able to check myself in to reality at that point, uh, is something I'm still very proud of to this day. But I remember we were in the locker room at our spring. We had a fitness checkup in probably the start of June, maybe the end of May. And our coach DJ Smith at the time was kind of going around the room and like picking out guys because he knew that we could have had a big year that year too. And that was the year before we won the Memorial cup. And he looked right at me and he said, those guys in this room that are competing for jobs, Hunter Smith, you're a second rounder in this league and you haven't done anything. He said, who are you? You haven't done a thing. And at that point in the league, I think I had 45 games played in two years with a one goal, one assist. And, and I don't think anyone's ever told me that straight up about my hockey career. So not that I was nurtured, but people didn't want to be ruthless like that. And he was, and a light bulb went off and I decided that it was going to be six, 7am mornings all summer. It was going to be two days, pretty much all summer. No booze. I think, I think I did go one night to a wedding and had some beers with some friends and, and that was it for the entire summer. But when I look back, I would do it all over again, the exact same way, because it really led me to where I am today and fortunate enough to have experienced everything I've got to experience. So yeah, I would do it again, a hundred percent. And it's just, that's when I finally learned what like hard work can really do for you. Yeah. And why don't you elaborate on what changed after DJ told you that gave you that talk and that light bulb went off, like you were saying, talk to us about what changed after what were the results from doing that hard work? I think I just, I saw it was an opportunity of someone telling me that like my dream was coming to an end. And then when I clicked in and started working hard, it was easy. And I was fortunate enough not to get into too much detail, but we played the first game of the season in Windsor against the Spitfires. And I ended up getting a assist in the first period. And then I scored the game winning goal in the third. Then the next night we played in Sarnia they tied up the game with like 30 seconds left or a minute left. And he put us out there and I scored with 12 seconds left to get the second game winner, second night in a row and doubled my goal total for my career in two games. So I was just off to the races and I just kept building from that and building and my confidence shot through the roof. I was extremely fortunate enough to have that hot start. And then I ended up playing on a line with um, some really good players who I don't want to say carried me, but, definitely helped me along the way. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Hunter, you were so close. You were so close to cracking a dream that you had for a while of going to the NHL, playing professional hockey at that level. Is there something that you could have told yourself as a kid or when you were going through those grind years? Is there something that you could have told yourself or changed that could have been the game changer for you. And maybe you wouldn't have ended up where you are today. Uh, maybe have like a few less beers probably would have helped. Uh, but <laughs> no, I was, I was pretty good. I like to go out and have fun with the guys, but I was pretty good. Um, I think the biggest piece of advice I would have gave myself as an athlete, at least um, moving away from home at 17 and being away for kind of some like pretty big growth years. Um, 
because everyone else is back at home in university and I, and I was kind of missing that. And not that I was homesick, I was doing my own thing, but I always was excited to get back. And I think if I had one piece of advice, I would just say your buddies are going to be there. Your buddies that support you and love you, they're going to be there no matter what. And if you say you can't do this or you can't do that, they would have understood. Um, I always thought I was missing out on something. And I didn't realize till about a year ago that everyone else was missing out on what I was doing. Sure. I feel a little bit behind right now, but I would not trade what I got to do for what they got to do. And that's no offense to anybody. Uh, I was very fortunate to, to have been able to play juniors for four years and then pro for four years, but just, I, I wasn't missing out and just kind of enjoy the experience. And I'd not be so eager to eager to get home for the summer and honestly, maybe move to, they always wanted me to move to Calgary for a summer. And I always rejected it because I just wanted some time at home with friends and family, but that's, that was key for my, my mental health at the time. And that's what I needed to do. And I think I just would have had a little more focus if I was surrounded by more like-minded people and also putting together if I'm sitting in Calgary, I'm training with their people. They have an eye on me all summer so they can see the progress and they could have really appreciated that. Hmm. So you really think that you kind of having that in the back of your mind that you kind of wanted to go home, hang out with the guys or your family, that that kind of hindered you in your career, eh? Definitely a bit. I just, not terribly, but, and I would never ever, I'm not blaming anyone. All the decisions were my own and mm -hmm. for my own, I guess, sanity, but I just, I wanted to be home. I kind of felt like I was missing out and it, it wasn't until after I retired where I honestly kind of hung around for a few months. and was like, it's great to see everybody, but like, this isn't it either. So, so that was, that was a bit of a humbling experience for sure. Yeah. Because it goes two ways. There's one path of taking the route that 99% of people take, going to school, getting your job, getting your pension, retiring. You didn't take that at first. You took what the 1% kind of take. And now that you've done that, you shot your shot, you're saying that you don't regret going full eggs in, eh? No, not at all. And I think the biggest thing, this is how I try to explain it to people. Um, and not to be rude, this comes off kind of rude sometimes, but there's... I think 1,550 NHL contracts at any given time in the world. And for three years, I held, I held one of those 1,550. Mm. So I have a lot to be proud of for that. And every year in the draft, there's 210 or now it's 217 or something guys selected. And I got to be one of those guys and I, and I'm so grateful for that opportunity, but how many good lawyers are there in Windsor? A city. How many good lawyers are there in Ontario? How many good accountants are there, doctors in Ontario? And not taking anything away from their achievements at all. Fantastic, great things. But there was 1,500 in the world, and I had one of them for three years. And I, I'm so grateful for that opportunity. And I never got to be one of the, the 700 that was on the roster for the day. Never will be. And I'm okay with that because... I've had some extensive talks with friends who have played one, two, 10, 300 games. And I'm so proud of them. And I'm so happy for them that they've achieved such success. And 
they, they know how, like, they know how hard it was and, and they get it. And they've kind of been a big help in reassuring me that even though I never, I never got to play a game, I really did make a fantastic career for myself. So I always really appreciate uh, when guys reach out. Yeah. I'm so envious of that. So envious of that. Was it always your dream to go to the NHL? Like, was that what you always wanted to do as a kid? Or, or was that something that was just kind of in the air, you know, society pressured you into that? Because Windsor's a big hockey city. And that's where a lot of the so-called cool, good athletes end up. What do you think? I think 100%. I think, obviously, you never played hockey growing up, so it's funny to say yeah. all Canadians' kids' dreams is to play in the NHL. But mine really was, and it was from an influence of, for sure, my dad and his brother played in the NHL for a bit and works in the NHL now. And I always I always wanted to, to skate out of that tunnel. And hmm. I still remember when you... Well, I ran out of the tunnel once in Calgary for a preseason game, fans in the stands and everything. And when I ran out of that tunnel, the lights are brighter. You can't see the top row. It like, it really was a cool experience. And I have a funny story about that game is in warmups, you're kind of like starstruck and you're out there with um, like NHL players that have played in the league and have accumulated a lot of games. And for a guy who's trying to make an impression, uh, I was just 20 years old and I was so nervous and I'll never forget this in my life. So Warm-ups finishes, all fine, all good. And we're on the bench for puck drop. And puck drop happens. I hop on the ice. I, I'm pretty sure I blacked out the entire shift. I couldn't see. <laughs> I don't know what happened. As soon as I got on the ice, the puck came to me. I immediately looked to the middle, made a terrible pass, got picked off, and went the other way. And then what happened was the D stole the RD stole the puck back gave it right back to me and I was flat footed staring off into space and the guy came and picked my pocket again and took the puck and I hadn't even moved 10 feet. I'll never forget the D were NHL defensemen and they were just screaming. They were like, what the is going on right now? Like, and I, and I felt so bad. I couldn't have got off that ice quick enough. As soon as the puck left the zone, I skated right to the bench and assistant coach from Stockton that uh, was actually a super fantastic guy, Todd Gill, he was running the defense that day and he came all the way down the bench and just grabbed me and just said, Smitty, just breathe, man. It's going to be okay. He goes, the first one's out of the way. Just play, play hockey, just go have fun. And it was so calming because you're, you just feel like you're under such a microscope out there and you're trying to be impressive and you just absolutely do something stupid like that. And, um, you know, I'll actually never forget when he did that and how much it helped me for the rest of the night. Oh my God. Like that's a lot of eyes, a lot of pressure on you. Th th and that you said was your first time. Was that your first and only time putting on a flames Jersey? Uh, I did there. And then I did the next year in Winnipeg, but Oh my God. Like that must've been crazy. The, like the nerves going through. Yeah. And it's, it's just, that's what I think a lot of guys find success is they don't get that starstruck mentality and they kind of have that I belong. Mm -hmm. And I never really found that. And I think that's a big reason why I, I struggled with some of that stuff and I struggled with the pressure. Yeah. Wow. What do you think was the most challenging thing you've had to do, whether that was in your hockey career or anything else, but what was one of the hardest things you've ever had to overcome? 
it definitely wasn't hockey, but it was, it wasn't about actual on ice performance. I would say when my, I was playing in the East coast for Toledo and I went into my last year, kind of knowing it was my last year, but I was going to give it one more shot. Um, hoping for a good year, maybe a call up. And then who knows what would have happened after that. Anyways, I broke my thumb for the second time, missed 12 or 16 weeks, came back, finished the year with the team. And our last game of the year was in Brampton. So it's one of the only Canadian team in Ontario and Toledo's just across the border. So we bust there the night before. And then when I was in that room that day, I was 95% sure it was my last game I'd ever play of hockey. And that was a really hard pill to swallow. And I didn't know what was going to happen, but played the game, played fine, did well, very happy. It wasn't, it didn't end up being my last game, but what happened was we took the bus home, stopped in Windsor and dropped off uh, me and the assistant coach, Andy Delmore. And we went back and back to his house and I was getting in my car in the driveway and he just said, Hey, Smitty, come here. And he asked me, he said, do you want to be on our playoff roster or not? So he was essentially asking me if I wanted my career to be over that day or not. And it was in my hands. And he said, listen, I don't know how much you're going to play. I don't know if you're going to play, but if you want on the roster, you're on the roster. And I said, hundred percent. I said, I know this is how it's going, whatever. And we had a good team and I knew we were going to go deep in the playoffs. So it was going to be a long haul. So the hardest part for me was accepting that final stage of stepping back not that I was in the spotlight before, but really stepping into a, a healthy scratch role. And a guy got hurt in the finals and I ended up checking the lineup. And uh, I was super fortunate enough to, to score a goal in my final game. I think it was my third last shift or something. We ended up losing in the finals, but as far as personal satisfaction with that final game, very, very high. But it was just, it was such a challenge for me to, to step back and really accept that it was over. And I kind of got two months to process it, which made it a bit easier, but it was an opportunity. I was super grateful for that. They let me do just really hard to kind of sit there in and out every night and uh, knowing it's coming to an end. And I didn't see the light at the end of the tunnel, but I, I had to keep my nose to the grindstone and stay ready. And I was ready and it paid off. Oh my God. That's, that's a lot to unpack there. Sorry. No. Would you say that that was when you kind of started realizing that you were in a quarter life crisis? I would say that was the moment where I officially like declared it, but I definitely started realizing it about two years earlier. Hmm. Um, but that was, that was the cri the major crisis because I didn't know which way my life was going. I, di I didn't know what was next. I didn't know if it was university. I didn't know if it was coaching or, the workplace or wherever. And that was, that was the hardest part, just kind of sitting on it. And after giving, I was 23 when I retired. So after giving 23 years of my life full out to sit there and have really no skills in anything else, stepping into the real world, it was really scary. Yeah, it must've been. And would you say that you're making steps towards getting out of your QLC? Are you still in it? What's going on now? I am a hundred percent right dead in the center of my <laughs> life crisis. Okay. I'm well aware of that, but 
not to be cheesy, the first step is kind of recognizing and accepting it. And that's, yeah, and that's yeah. fine. Um, every day I can like run thoughts through my head that I'm behind or I'm not doing this or like financially things are getting like a little stressful. Like, and I, I could do that all day, every day, but I've, I've learned to the ways where I've expanded is I'm healthier than I've ever been, um, physically and mentally. And I'm way sharper. I'm not going to school for six years. My brain shrunk into the size of a raisin <laughs> and now it's finally active and it, I can think and I make cognitive decisions and I can contribute to people's conversations, which is extremely nice. You've changed so much. Like we talked about, and now you've got totally different passions. There's no one else telling you what to do now, but you. Yeah. And that's a huge part of it. Obviously a guy like you kind of got me into the guitar. I'm not going to lie. Hmm. You just showed me after a year how good you can get. And when quarantine started, I said, hell with it. I'm going to pick up a guitar and start playing. And by no means am I any good, but I love to play. And it's, it's a way to express myself creatively. And I think that's the biggest thing that I've taken from it is I have time to physically push myself, mentally push myself, and now creatively push myself. And I think having like a nice balance of all those things is a huge asset just to round yourself out as a human. And, and that's what I, that's what I love about the amount of time I have right now. And obviously I'm not working, but I'm in school full time, but just to have time to explore other interests. We talked about the van. Like I have time to travel where before that was never an option for me. So it, it really is exciting before it was hard to carve out a week to go away and miss a week of training and skating. So I really do appreciate the spot I'm in now. Well, yeah. And like, look at you now, I'm sure there's more than what I'm going to list off, but you're into fishing, which you were always into fishing. You read books. Now the hunter I knew wasn't reading. You meditate, you do yoga. These are all things that you weren't doing when we were cracking cores in high school. You know what I mean? Pabst, but <laughs> I, there were cores, lights, iced teas and Bayfield. But <laughs> yeah. you can call it what you want. Yeah. But it's amazing that this is just what you're doing. There's no one else telling you what to do anymore. And while, yeah, it's unfortunate that maybe it's in the past now, a former dream of yours, you're completely in a new realm of doing you. Yeah, and I just think the biggest part of, of my growth was probably about two years ago. I under, It was in the middle of playing in Toledo. I finally, for the first time, understood... I am in control of everything in my life. They say there's things that you're not in control of that are out of your control. I disagree completely. I think you are in control of everything that you do. If something bad happens, there's a different way to react to it. That could be a more positive way. Mm -hmm. And I think kind of taking control of my own life and not being pushed around by anybody, even like, like my parents, like they obviously wanted me to go to school and that's what I ended up doing. But I waited six months and that was my own choice. And if I had that six months back, I'd graduate school a semester earlier. Big deal. Four months. At the end of time, when I'm sitting there, I'm not going to be saying, wow, I wish I went to school four months earlier. Yeah. Wow. Listen, before we end off here, I just want to leave one message to the audience. There's so many people, so many people out there that go the path that society has led them down. You know, go to school, get a job, do 30 years of work and retire. And I know that so many of these people 
want to do something else, want to go for something else, have a dream in the back of their head that they haven't itched and it just doesn't happen. And this is the whole reason that we started this podcast was so that you don't end up regretting what you didn't do when you were younger. And it only gets harder as time goes on. If you were to give one piece of advice to these people that are on the edge, that are ready to change and do something that they've always wanted to do, start a podcast, be a YouTuber, whatever it is, what piece of advice would you leave them with today? I would say don't half-ass it. And this comes from a quote from Matthew McConaughey's autobiography, Green Lights. And he talks about when he was in university, his whole plan was to go to law school. And he realized he was a great storyteller and he didn't want to go to law school. He wanted to go to film school. So he calls his dad one day and he says, hey, dad. And he's nervous because he doesn't know how he's going to react. He doesn't want to follow what his dad said or what his dad wanted. And he goes, hey, dad, I'm going to go to film school instead of law school. And his dad just waited five seconds and responded, okay, don't half-ass it. And I think there's so much to be said for that. And if you're going to be in, be all in. Because if you're half in, you're you're not going to see the results you want and you're going to quit on it earlier. So I would say if there's something that you have in the back of your mind right now, for the next month, don't half-ass it. Every day, put effort into that and find a way to progress yourself. Whether that's writing a book, running, starting a podcast, applying to a job or a school, don't half-ass it. Put everything you can to make sure it is the best it can possibly be. Well, we'll leave you off with that. Hunter, thank you very much for being the guest on our show. And I'm sure you'll be back on because guess what? You're my co-host, pal. So you better be back on in the future. Like I said, you've been a celebrity in my eyes for a while now, even though you're a close buddy of mine. I appreciate it. And I'll talk to you soon, Rex. Now I'm shaking off the rush. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to the Quarter Life Crisis podcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and listening to us bozos talk about absolutely zero. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Instagram at theqlcguys.com, except for the fact that that's not true. There's no .com. Just do you.